The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League season too. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Good afternoon, passengers. This is a pre-boarding announcement for flight 8900. Please have your boarding pass and identification ready. Another night of wow at the Euros. Italy through against Belgium. Champagne football and Martinez on the rocks in the big match in Munich. Meantime, in St. Petersburg, Spain meets Switzerland and pull off the worst game involving Busquets since my school days, taken to penalties by the Swiss but scraping through. We look back at that and forward to Sunday's other quarters, Denmark against the Czech Republic and, yes, England-Ukraine. Plus, there's hot takes on the day's news from around the world of football. It's totally at the Euros in association with Paddy Power. Yes, that's right. They will be back singing the hymn at Wembley. Our friends, the Italians. It's Saturday, the 3rd of July. And here we have a big fat total at the Euros for you. We've got, oh, Charlie Eckershow with us. Congratulations, Charlie. New father, Charlie. Yeah, not actually that new, but um, yeah, I'll take it all the same. Okay. Uh, Also with us, oily sailor himself, Duncan Alexander. Hello, Duncan. Hello, James. Hello to you. And also James Horncastle. Hello, James. Hello. Well, quite. Later on, there'll be a bit of Alvaro on Spain. Uh, We've had two games, of course, this Friday. Uh, Spain taken to penalties by Switzerland. A rough night for that Swiss fellow with the Harry Potter glasses, really, after his team's performance uh, from the the spot. And the the Spanish just creeping through. No goals in open play in in that game for for Luis Enrique's side, but they will be facing Italy in the semi-final at Wembley after the Italians defeated uh, the Belgians, the number one ranked side in the world, 2-1 this evening. Well, actually, last night for you, listener, in Munich. Crikey, anyway. All sorts of drama. Uh, Later on, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking forward to, of course, Saturday evening's games and some of the other stuff that's happening beyond the world of the Euros. But, hey, we're going to begin with Belgium-Italy in Munich. You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. All right, steady on, mate. Yeah, that was, of course, the Insigne scoring the goal. He's been trying to put away all the tournament, and, and very nice it was too. That was 2-0. Before that, Bonucci 
thought he'd given Italy the lead. It was called back for offside. Barella went barreling through, actually, the uh, Belgian box and, and, and opened up the scoring. And then we had Lorenzo, the Il Magnifico, with that one. And then never a pen, but the Belgians got back into it after uh, Doku went down. And, uh, well, uh, well, James Horncastle, let, let, let's start with you. That's, what, 32 games without defeat and pr- the most impressive of the lot. Perhaps, yeah. Um, it's certainly been a knock on no matter how well they've played that they haven't played someone, quote-unquote, good or big, even though if you look at their group stage games, even the warm-up games prior to it, uh, they now look even better than, with hindsight. I mean, they flattened the Czechs who put out the Dutch, uh, they flattened the Swiss, um, who put out the French and took the Spanish to penalties. Uh, and tonight they put out uh, the number one ranked team in the world. And I think it was a, uh, there was everything in that performance. It was another reminder that, you know, after the, the round of 16 game against Austria, which Mancini had kind of said, look, this will be the harder game because it's the one where we have everything to lose. Uh, Austria, the, the underdogs in that game, and we can go out if we if we suffer defeat in that. And you could see in the second half when they began that badly at Wembley, they began to panic. Um, tonight, I think they went into it believing that uh, it was an evenly matched game, that there wasn't as much pressure on them. But I think, you know, as, as I was saying, in that first half where they, they played the football that we've seen from them so far, the second half was different. The second half, it had... It had everything. It had, you know, heartbreaking. Spinazzola, who's been one of the players players of the tournament, going off. What does that mean for Italy? Mm. What did it mean for this game? Um, you had Chiellini with that kind of uh, very reminiscent of Cannavaro in Dortmund uh, against Germany, where just everything uh, that that Belgium threw at Italy seemed to hit him and bounce off him. Um, and yeah, great saves from Donnarumma as well, and yeah, wonderful shithousery and play acting as well, which uh, it was just it was just fantastic to see. So I thought, I thought, I thought you got to see the perfect balance of the new Italy and the old Italy in this game. I thought that's the best played injury time I've ever seen in a football game. I think um, I think it was five minutes initially. I think the first four, the ball wasn't in play, and then the ref was like, "I'll add on another one and a bit." And uh, it was just perfectly done. Even Donnarumma celebrating a goal kick with the fans right at the end was was perfect. But it, like you say, James, it was a game of two of two halves. The first half was like end to end, some of the best international football I've seen for a long time. But it also there's a lot of people on online sort of going, "Why can't? Why don't all teams play like this? It's brilliant. This pace and you know." And then the second half was a series of muscle injuries as the uh, as the impact of that first half hit home. And yeah, I think Spinazzola is going to be a huge a huge loss. It really impacts the way Italy play. But um, the togetherness and the and the the sort of team spirit I think um, was was so clear. And you know, I think that game against Spain, obviously, there's a there's a lot of uh, history between the two countries and I think um, you could see Italy worrying about that match, but on paper they should definitely win. Well, they've definitely looked like the side, haven't they, with kind of the most coherent plan. Um, you know, we've seen so many of the big teams looking a little bit lost. And I was talking about this with a friend and he was basically making the point that it, it, a lot of it must be down to the fact they've got a manager as good as Mancini. Um, I think it's really interesting now, You look, the standard of management international level is way down on what we're used to at club level plus the fact they get so much less time with the players which is probably why elite managers don't really want to be managing international level but he uh 
he still seems to have it. And, and it did get me thinking, like, he, that he hasn't been back to the Premier League since winning the title, which is a really rare thing, actually. Um, and I don't know how much that's to do with the perception of him and his personality. You know, he's clearly not the easiest to get on with, but he, he appears to be making an enormous difference for them. Uh, they, they just look so complete and you know they have those automatisms that you see at club level um that allows teams to attack in a really exciting entertaining way because the players know exactly what they're doing so i mean on the basis of what we've seen today you you would think they they would be the big favorites against spain um but who knows i mean maybe spain will turn it on for that game in a way they were unable to today Mm, possibly so. Possibly so. From Belgium's point of view, uh, I, I doubt your words are going to be quite so glowing about Roberto Martinez. But they did have some huge opportunities. A couple of moments in the second half when it just seemed inevitable that the ball was going to find the net for them, and yet somehow Italy survived. How close do you think that this game actually was? Well, I I, I tweeted actually at half time. Um, I thought I had a weird feeling Belgium would win the game three um, two, which obviously didn't come to pass. But um, I don't think it was a million miles away. I mean, I think if that Lukaku one goes in and they've got the momentum at 2-2, like, you know, it's a cliche, but these are small margins. Um, I don't think they're anything like as coherent a team as Italy. You mentioned Martinez. I think he's quite a good example of the kind of level uh, of manager you have uh, in these tournaments. But we've seen Belgium come back and win a knockout game at major tournament under him from 2-0 down as they did it against Japan at the last World Cup so I think had that gone in they they may have just rode that momentum they've got attacking players good enough to do it but I don't think um, they necessarily deserve to do that on the balance of the first half and the game as a whole I mean it, obviously one of uh, Mancini's final games as City manager was the cup final that he lost uh, against Wigan with uh, with Martinez in charge of Wigan you know and it also like Charlie said, then it feels a little bit like that in this game, almost like Martin is set up as the as the smaller team to try and contain mm-hmm. uh, Mancini, and it didn't really work. I mean, it kind of it became apparent in the second half that they just realised that their 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 best threat or best way of scoring was probably just to keep feeding the ball to Jeremy Doku, who obviously came in as a as a teenager into this game, and he had a really good match. And I think for a lot of people hadn't who don't watch a lot of Ligue 1 hadn't really seen how good he is. Um, and he's definitely going to come out of this tournament with a lot of credit, and I imagine his agent will be, uh, you know, quite busy over the next few days. But um, mm. it, it seemed as the game went on, Belgium never, although they did have a couple of good chances, they, they never really built up that head of steam. Um, they looked a little bit more coherent in the first half, I think. De Bruyne, and I think Italy played De Bruyne pretty well. He dropped a bit deeper in the second half, and didn't. He didn't look completely fit to me. He looked increasingly very hot during the game. I don't know how warm it was in Munich, but. Um, yeah, and in the end, um, Belgium's last shot was in the 84th minute. And as we know, and as, as we mentioned, the, the gamesmanship was superb from, from Italy. And uh, yeah, they didn't really test on a rumour uh, at all towards the end. Right. Best doku performance since the planet Geonosis, I, I, I felt myself. James, what, <laughs> what, what happened? I was, trying to make, I was trying to think of a joke earlier around that, but I couldn't, yeah. Well done, you've, you've no, got I wasn't joking, but uh, so no Spinazzola against Spain, but what's the next step for this Mancini masterpiece? And just if you can, briefly, it's a very excellent point that Charlie makes. Managers don't have a lot of time, and the sea change that Italy have undergone under Mancini is quite extraordinary to see them leaving a couple of players back while they pressed 
Belgian up the field was it's just such a switch in mentality from them how has he been able to affect that so so easily or so so rapidly well I, I think it's it's not all him uh is is the answer to that um I think this is work that the Italian Football Federation has been uh bringing forward for the last 10 years and uh, the reforms that Arrigo Sacchi kind of sets in motion when Italy uh went out in the group stage of the 2010 World Cup and basically completely overhauled young players, at least uh, when they came in uh, to play for the national team um, at, uh, at Coveciano. And yeah, the, these players, I mean, you talk to uh, Barella, Locatelli, uh, players of that generation, they've been playing together for Italy in this style since the under-15s. Um, and I think one of the things Mancini's been very good at is to base this team around the quality at his disposal rather than impose his system, his ideas on it, um, which is what his predecessors did. It's what Conte did to good effect with his 3-5-2, his classic Conte system. It's what Giampiero Ventura, uh, his uh, terrible successor, also did um, with with less success. And instead, Mancini has said, right, I haven't got you know one system here. I just want to base it around the skill that we've got and play with the same values that these players have been brought up with uh, when they've been playing for the national team at youth level. And I think that's why this team looks so coherent. It uh, looks like it, it, they know each other inside out, that they've played together. Um, I think the other thing to say is that you know it's quite unusual. Only two players who start from Juventus, Chiellini and uh, Bonucci. Chiesa started tonight, but he's only started two games this tournament. The rest are players who you know play for Sassuolo or in you know Insigne, Verratti and Immobile's case, played together for Pescara. So... There are guys who have played together uh, at club level, but not at sort of big clubs that have rivalries. Although, man, Chiro Mobile, <laughs> Chiro Mobile tonight <laughs> had one of the worst performances by a centre forward I can remember. It was it was unbelievable. Mancini left him on for what seventy five minutes. It was just incredible, and they still yeah, won. Th- I mean, that's the, that's another thing that makes you think. Wow, okay, this is if Italy, I don't know, had a. A, re- a, a centre forward as talented as Verratti as a midfielder or as senior as a winger, that game would have been out of sight, I think, at half time. Hmm. International football is increasingly just—it's becoming apparent that it's either, you know, teams are either hit rock bottom and they have to like go back to their football association and basically rebuild the values of that country's football philosophy, or ten years on, that's come to fruition and everything's going well. Or four or six years after that, the team have done so well that everyone just, you know, it's all infighting and, and everyone hates each other. So, and it's just repeat, but everyone's on a slightly different point on that cycle. So, um, you know, Italy and England possibly are on, that, on the up at the moment, whereas other teams are, uh, have peaked and are on the way down. Crikey, you're a bit jaded, aren't you, Duncan? Charlie? <laughs> no, I just wanted something, like... <laughs> I thought that was quite upbeat. <laughs> Um, question for James. I mean, why why do you think Mancini, given he won the FA Cup and won, you know, ended City's top flight title drought, uh, why do you think he hasn't been back to the Premier League in eight years? I mean, how much is that him? How much is that clubs not wanting him? Well, I think James will remember this as well. At Inter, when he won the title three years in a row, the first one was kind of handed to them after the Calciopoli scandal. But uh, And then the events were relegated. Other teams had points deductions. Some of them lost their, their best players to, to some of the Spanish giants, but again, mainly Juventus. 
people kind of looked at Mancini and thought, wow, you're at Inter, spent loads of money, you're taking advantage of a league where your competitors have been weakened, and then Mourinho comes in, wins the treble. And then likewise, at, at Man City, a lot of people looked at it and thought, wow, he's at the club that's got more money than anyone in the world. They've spent that money and great, you know, he's won the league title for the first time in 40 years. But for Mancini to be successful, he needs to have money in, in, in the same way that people look at Conte and think exactly that now. Okay, if we hire this guy, then this is what we're going to have to spend. And then he kind of drifted. I mean, you know, he went to, I think he wanted to get back in. And sometimes when you want to get back in, you make you make the wrong decisions. I mean, he he went to Galatasaray, he then went back to Inter. There was a change of owner who wanted their own their own guy, who wanted to recruit in a different way. So they clashed, he left. He then went to Zenit. All of a sudden, you know, he was he was coaching big clubs, but in leagues that are outside the top five. And I, I think at that stage you you risk becoming forgotten about. Um, even though mm. I think in hindsight um, he has been able to introduce the same winning mentality that he had as a player you know when he won Samp their one and only league title when he won Lazio their first league title since the 70s you know you saw him do that at Inter first time in 18 years they, they'd won the league first time 40 years that they'd won it at City yeah that is just that's who he is I mean you know James will know having interviewed him and being around him he's he's um you know, on the one hand, he's like a very handsome guy, but he can be quite, he's got that edge about him, which you can kind of see why why he wins. Um, mm-hmm. But it's easy that he's been forgotten about. Quite a, quite a reminder this evening in Munich last night for you, <laughs> listener. What do you think then? What do you think about the clash with Spain, James? Before we let you go to kind of bang out a top piece for the Athletic about this game. <laughs> I don't think there's, there's any stopping... Uh, Italy right now I think they've played the best football in the tournament I think they've been that good uh, and Spain in these these last two games okay you know in, in their final group game in the, in the in the Croatia game they've what scored 10 goals but at the same time they look like a team that might never score uh, it's it's a very weird dynamic that they've got there were there, there was there was phases of the game uh, last night where they reminded me a little bit like of Germany in, in against England where you know the defence and the midfield is okay and then you're like oh Oh, they've got to get to the final third. Who's who's up front for them? Um, and Spain sometimes give you that same impression. So I don't think Italy have got anything to fear. I, I know that they they feel that they're playing with house money now because they, you know, I think they're privately they they thought that a semi final was was a realistic goal, but they were kind of publicly saying a quarter final would be great. Already exceeded expectation and. Uh, yeah, I think they'll, the, the press is off in, in many respects. And certainly, I think even if they were to go out, you know, Mancini will go out of this tournament, head held high, believing that they've got something to build on going into the World Cup. Whereas I think with Luis Enrique, there just seems to be a lot of polemic. There seems to be a lot of you know arguments about team selection. Is this, actually, is this team any good? So, yeah, we'll see. I think uh, I'm confident. All right. Well, last time the two teams met... At the sharp end of a Euros tournament, of course, it was Spain who ran out 4 no winners. That was in the final in 2012. But so much has changed. So very much has changed since then. James, uh, have a splendid evening. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon, ahead of that semi-final, perhaps. Uh, and we'll be back after this, listener, talking about Spain, Switzerland. The Euros are here, and we'd better make the most of them because they only come around every four, uh, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. 
Yep, not so much carpe diem as carpadium. <laughs> if the grass is greener on the other side, come and play on it. If your book is not giving you the best rewards, switch. And if one leg of your 4 plus fold bet builder lets you down, get money back as a free bet on all games this Euros. Paddy Power. Pretty much only max free bet £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Minolds 1 to 5 are on exclusive T's and C's apply. 18 plus begambler.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Auf der Ruben Vargasse und schüßt jetzt und verschüßt über Scorine. Yeah, a little bit of Swiss commentary then on uh, Ruben Vargas and the the mispen that that basically saw Spain go through. In the shootout, the Swiss had been <laughs> banking on penalties through extra time, but failed to account for their own poor finishing. The game had taken uh, its customary start. Spain benefiting from a an own goal for the third time, Zakaria, uh, with the deflection off Jordi Alba's shot. Switzerland, though, bouncing back once again. Jordan Shakiri, just after that, they went down to 10 men and then had to kind of hang on through the extra 30 minutes until the spot kicks. Spain goes through then without having scored from open play and having barely mustered many shots on target in the course of the 120 minutes. Joining us now on the line is Alvaro Romeo. Alvaro! Hello, James. How are you? I'm very well. How, how are you? How nervous was that evening's work for you? I think that uh, in the last four days, I, I lost four or five kilos and I ate uh, seven or eight years because it's been played a crazy uh, extra time against Croatia and same thing happened against Switzerland and this time uh, it was down to Spain to win it really after Switzerland they lost one one man Freuler um, on the 77th minute but they just couldn't score in the extra time and then an unusual suspect Unai Simon became the hero of Spain stopping two penalties saving two penalties mm. okay so is there a serious problem with Luis Enrique's side then I think that uh, as a team, they are doing everything they can, and I would say that very well, uh, but then uh, individual executions are costing Spain a lot. We saw that in the game against Croatia when Unai Simon made that massive mistake, just uh, letting Pedri score a known goal, even though we know that it was the goalkeeper's mistake. And for example, today, they called that... Uh, Switzerland scored. It was a mistake, a lack of understanding maybe between Laporta and Pau Torres, also a bad reaction by the Villarreal defender. And I think that overall in the tournament, Spain is paying uh, because of that. Uh, bad executions are costing a team that collectively they are doing many things well. You just have to go to the stats pack of UEFA to see that Spain is one of the teams that are doing more attacking sequences, that they are considering less shots. But then again, uh, some players are having a misfortune. They are making mistakes in pretty much every game and uh, the team has to make a monumental effort to, to recover from that and to be in the game and yeah fortunately today for Spain uh, Freuler was sent off and then after that well yes playing against 10 men they managed to create some chances but against Italy any poor execution any big mistake not scoring or anything like that is going to cost Spain definitely because Italy is a far better team than Croatia and definitely better than Switzerland too. Okay, it's the second game in a row you've gone to extra time. Not sure how much that's going to impact on the team's legs. But from what you're saying, then you still believe that this Spain side could be just kind of one good performance away from finally clicking? 
I think they could, yes, because uh, this is a team that uh, in the Nations League back in autumn, they managed to qualify for the Final Four, uh, which tells you that against opposition, their level, they have managed to maximize what they do. The good thing with Spain is that they've got vitality. Um, the players that come onto the pitch, they are ready and they don't seem to be aloof and they all make a contribution. I think that they are fresh because Luis Enrique has rotated the team a lot. And uh, I believe that Spain has a conviction in the style uh, because they've got a manager who has uh, persuaded the players that they have to play this way. And there is unity in the group. Uh, this time, Spain is not uh, fractioned. Uh, there are no you know, uh, different groups within the team, Real Madrid players, Barcelona players. This is a good unit. So I think that this is the, or these are the reasons to believe in Spain. But when you see Italy play, you realize that Italy, they've got something else. They've got an extra point of quality, maybe, or definitely an extra point of uh, conversion. Uh, in the boxes, they are much better than Spain, and uh, there are not, or they don't do so many individual mistakes. Mm. Uh, Charlie and Duncan, what, what did you make of, of Spain against Switzerland? I thought they were a bit rubs. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I, I feel like this team, this Spanish team... It, Maybe in the age of data, etc., this isn't so fashionable to say something so unquantifiable. But I, I feel like they lack a bit of personality. Um, they, they seem to do kind of all the right things in lots of ways. They have nice patterns. Um, even like the way they were taking shots, they were all well struck and on target. But they were all straight at the keeper. And just feel like they lack a bit of edge. Uh, disclaimer on this, I also said the same thing about Man City at the start of last season, that they kind of lacked personality and played in this way. And we <laughs> saw how that turned out. Um, but yeah, that, that was my assessment. I, I, de- I, it used to irritate me when people said about the team that won all those titles in 2008, 10, 12, that they were boring. I didn't see that. I really enjoyed watching them because... It always felt like they were going to score and that they had control. Whereas I do find this team quite uninspiring um, just because I do feel they lack that edge and that threat. And I know that might sound strange given that they scored five in each of their last two games, but they've also just missed so many chances. And I, I just felt today it was telling because after they scored that early goal, you never really got a sense they were going to just take the game and really pin Switzerland back and put it out of sight. I, I felt from when they didn't score a second that there was it felt almost inevitable they were going to concede I mean it looked like it was going to be from a set piece but you know it was absolutely no surprise that they did Um, and given all the advantages they had in the game with the red card the injuries that Switzerland suffered it to me was a very very unconvincing uh, unconvincing result and performance yeah I know what you mean Charlie I mean Sommer made nine saves in that game but like you say none of them they were good saves, but none of them were like, wow, he's really stopped Spain from, you know, a brilliant chance there. And, they, they were and the pretty game good. Did pivot. Yeah, they were, so he, he played really well. He's made 15 saves in the knockout stage, which is the most by any keeper in any knockout stage in Euro's history. So he'll go down as, probably he'll be the goalkeeper of the tournament, I would say. But even so, people buy narrative too much now. Everyone was going, oh, well, Spain will definitely lose a penalty shootout because Jan Sommer can't let in a penalty because that's what narrative says, which isn't the case. But we can't really underestimate how much the red card changed the match because the equaliser from Jordan Shakiri was, was Switzerland's last shot of the game, which sounds bad, but when right. you actually look at what they had to do, it, you know, that was the the reason why. And I think, um, yeah, I just felt sorry for Switzerland. They'd, you know, they obviously 
took part in such an epic game uh, on uh, on Monday, and this one was similarly epic. They just didn't quite come out on the right on the right side. It's interesting that both games on Friday had featured pretty outstanding performances by keepers, and this debate of which one's better. Uh, if you could put the two of them together, you know, what would you have between Donnarumma and Summer? And the answer is, of course, Donna Summer, <laughs> Alvaro. Hmm. No, it, just uh, I wanted to say that uh, Switzerland was fantastic and that shouldn't be forgotten. I, this is a, a team uh, that uh, know how to nullify you. I think that the defenders were fantastic, Sommer as well. Uh, so I don't want to take anything away from them. Uh, and as for Spain, I would say that yes, I agree that they haven't been very inspiring so far, but at the same time, they've They've got plenty of players who could be very close to making a decisive step in their career and becoming very good. Uh, because at, mm. as it stands, I think Spain has many players who are, uh, let's put it this way, Europa League level, all right? But they've got the feeling that in one or two years, if they got the right management, the right coaching, they could become very good as well. And Pedri is probably the best possible example of that. Well, I think that Pedri is already Champions League level, by the way. Right. But I believe that these players, uh, they could be the... They could be part of the start of something. One never knows when a great team is born, but I do believe that uh, having won two extra times in this fashion against Croatia and against Switzerland, if anything, fortifies the idea of the Spanish national team. And I know that they've got many, um, still, they do many errors, but I think that this is something that moving ahead and with a bit of maturity, this is going to be polished for good. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a big part of it. I think that's a really good point that it may be that these are players and this is a team that we'll really see uh, come to the fore for the tournaments to come. But that might be slightly the issue from a kind of less informed English audience is that we're so used with Spanish teams to seeing these kind of legendary players that we're so familiar with. And, and I think that makes it easier to get behind them when it's Xavi and Iesta and guys like this. Whereas we're, we're almost being introduced to some of these players for the first time. Um, you know, those people who don't watch so much you know, Europa League and uh, La Liga and that sort of thing. And, and maybe that just makes it a little, uh, feel a little bit more anonymous and, and less characterful. I, I also just, something I've noticed, and Duncan, you may actually know this, but it, it occurred to me, and I, I don't know why this is, but a team never seems to win their second shootout in a major tournament. They always seem to lose it. Like Euro 96, both yeah. England and France lost. In the last World Cup, in the 2014 World Cup, Holland won one and then they lost one. Yeah. I think the numbers bear me out on that. And I'm, I, it, it, would, it seems counterintuitive because you might think, oh, they're well practiced at it, but it seems to always go the other way. Well, you're right. You're at, and this was Switzerland of the fourth team to go to penalties twice in a single Euros. And yeah, England and France won one and the last one in '96. And then Poland did the same in 2016 as well. Um, mm. And I think probably what it is, if you if you think back to England, they in '96 they picked exactly the same takers in exactly the same order, which actually worked. But then it obviously went round to to you know sudden mm. death. But I think often what happens is, you know, the penalty shootout the other night against France was technically brilliant, and then Switzerland were not technically brilliant, and well, neither was Spain, to be fair. But, I mean, I guess, obviously, Switzerland are famous for being one of the only teams to ever have a penalty shootout and not score in it when they lost to Ukraine on penalties in, in 2006. They didn't concede a goal in the tournament and didn't score in a penalty shootout and went out. So <laughs> they might be feeling a bit sad tonight, but it's not as bad as 2006. Alvaro, in, in Spain, are people getting behind this team or is there similar kind of levels of, uh, of mistrust? 
No, no, little by little. I think that people are getting behind the team. Um, you know, from the beginning, uh, there, are, there was a sector of the Spanish fan base that uh, weren't lucky uh, by, with Luis Enrique for not having picked on players from Real Madrid. But yes, obviously, it's inevitable. I mean, as the games went by, Spain started being slightly more entertaining. They kept on winning. And yeah, I think that nowadays, uh, pretty much everyone is behind the team, and especially uh, if they play against Italy, uh, I expect a huge audience watching the game on TV uh, next Monday. Charlie, a word on the Swiss. Well, yeah, this was actually about a player who wasn't playing today, but got a lot of airtime, um, partly because of how well he played uh, against France and you know he's known to an English audience is, and Granite, is Granite Xhaka and I've just found it funny the way the commentators are, the way they've been talking about him is as if he's this kind of competition winner and isn't it amazing that he can sort of kick a football <laughs> when he has actually ha- he's come off the back of actually a pretty good consistent season um, so I think it's funny the kind of how entrenched that view is of him he was obviously brilliant against France and I think that's another thing Spain benefited from I mean he's their captain and and has been really important for them one might even say Charlie that Xhaka was required you know for the Swiss this evening they also lost Briel Embolo in the first half as well which was a was another blow Mm. um and we did get to enjoy an English refereeing team uh, producing controversial <laughs> red cards. The first red by an English ref in a tournament, I think, since Howard Webb sent off John Heitinger in the 2010 World Cup. So. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Was the one before that, was that the Graham Pohl double, triple yellow card, I wonder? So th- yeah, possibly, yeah. Yeah, it probably was. Back in 2006. Three yellows, one dream, yeah. Yeah, right. So there was that Euro 2008 controversy, wasn't there, with an offside in a Poland game. So we've, we've really made our mark on the international stage. Nice. And of course, had Webb not sending off the De Jong. Don't forget that. Anyway, the Swiss are on their way. And uh, many thanks to them for lighting up various bits of this tournament, especially that clash with France. Spain, Italy on Monday. Next up for us, though, we're going to have a look at the uh, games coming up on Saturday. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, host of The England Show, brought to you daily throughout Euro 2020. I'll be joined by writers from The Athletic and special guests to bring you unrivaled coverage dedicated to the England team this summer. So for expert insight into Southgate squad and post-game reaction to all the games, search for The England Show wherever you get your podcasts or via The Athletic app. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D dot slash totally. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Hey, listener. If you've got a podcast you'd like to nominate for the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice, then get onto the British Podcast Awards website and vote. Uh, good. Now, later on today in Baku, uh, Denmark are taking on the Czech Republic. And then in Rome, it's England against Ukraine. The last time England played Ukraine, it was September 2013. Up front for England that day was Ricky Lambert, flanked by Theo Walcott and James Milner. England got a draw Solid. away from home. Yeah. I mean, it, they, they did a job. I'd take Ricky Lambert now. <laughs> okay. Uh, England have come on a bit since then. But what of Ukraine? Can their manager, Chevy, give them a, a lift? Uh, are we right to think that they have about the same chances of the teen cheerleader in the slasher movie or the guy who climbs a ladder at the start of an episode of Casualty? Well, to get a flavour, uh, we rang up Yevhen Muzeka, Ukrainian journalist in Odessa. Yevhen, everyone here seems to think that this game on Saturday is a done deal for England. What's the feeling there? Uh, of course, we all understand that uh, England is a clear favorite. Uh, you can uh, look uh, at the players from England, uh, that is the players from the teams uh, which compete in a Champions League final. And not all of these players uh, even play in the starting squad. Uh, but of course, we would like to believe that uh, we can do it. Uh, we can make a sensation like uh, Switzerland did and we can go to the uh, semi-final. I would say that uh, our chances is not so big, but maybe 20 or 25%. Well, how surprised are you to find Ukraine in the quarterfinals, just 90 minutes away from your first semi-final appearance ever? Uh, it was uh, like the main aim for our team to go uh, to the last 16. Uh, it was uh, quite pessimistic before the Sweden game, but uh, it was a crazy emotions. I was uh, in Odessa in the fan zone near the stadium, and uh, all the people were waiting for the penalties. Uh, were a little bit nervous, a lot of emotions uh, in Odessa and uh, in other Ukrainian cities as well, because a lot of my friends. And it was uh, men, women, uh, all of them. They posted to the Instagram stories. And uh, it was uh, like a holiday for the nation after that uh, victory. Sheva has had to make a lot of changes so far in pretty much every game. And no doubt he will here as well. What's his standing there uh, among Ukrainian fans? Is his popularity now as a manager approaching that of him as a player? Most of people uh, love him, uh, of course, because uh, Ukraine uh, can play very attractive football, not in all games, but from time to time, it's, uh, I think it's uh, better uh, Ukrainian, it's the best Ukrainian team which uh, I have seen in my life. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, there uh, there is some people which are unhappy that uh, he is uh, a friend to uh, Andre Pavelko, the chief of our uh, football association, because, you know, Pavelko is not the most popular here in Ukraine and Shevchenko is 
the godfather to his daughter, to Pavelka's daughter. And it's like cool that uh, he gets his job not because of him, of his merits, but because of his friendship. But, uh, you know, haters gonna hate and Shevchenko uh, showed with his results that he is a good coach. Everybody will go crazy with that, I think. Um, because six million people, uh, they watched the games uh, against Sweden. And now I think uh, it will be even more people uh, watching. And of course, when a not so big football country get a great result, there will be uh, celebrations. Yevgen Muzeka there. Haters gonna hate, as, as they say in Ukraine. To recap, uh, Ukraine, who'd lost 1-0 to Austria and who only lost October, had the worst defeat in their history, getting beaten 7-1 by France, have got half their team out injured. No side has conceded more shots in these Euros than they have, uh, but they will be playing with no pressure. What do, what do you think? Uh, Kane hat-trick? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the, fa- the fans thing is interesting because obviously it was a great atmosphere being Germany... Uh, on Tuesday, but often the fans at Wembley can get pretty ratty if England are kind of, you know, playing a sort of controlled nil-nil against a team that they are thought to be better than. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Kane, the the hope and the expectation is that he scored that one goal um, and typically when he ends a drought, he then goes on a tear. There's something I wrote about um, for The Athletic uh, today, actually. Uh, so I think there, there is a, you know, you would, you would back him to score. I mean, I, I, I said this after the Germany game that you can both think that Southgate got it right playing that quite defensive three at the back against Germany, but also think it's not complacent or arrogant to think that that's maybe not the ideal setup for this game. And I, and I do hope he recognises that, you know, England do have you know, a lot of good attacking options and they should be front-footed in this game and look to get at a team who had a pretty gruelling uh, last 16 match uh, only a few days ago um, and, you know, use some of those talents we have. And I think, yeah, if England can do that and get on the front foot, I think they should win this game reasonably comfortably. I mean, I think that's the positive thing about the Southgate um, regime is that in the past, England managers, whether they're successful like Alf Ramsey or Boy Robson in 1990 or not, they tend to sort of stumble upon a, a system or a team mm. and then just stick with that and go, well, that's going to carry us through. Totally. Um, and it once it has worked. But Southgate, in every game so far, he has adjusted for the opposition. Um, and I'd be incredibly surprised to see him go with the same system he used against Germany, against Ukraine. I mean, they start deeper, they start possessions deeper than any other team left in the, in the competition. Um, they're going to sit back. They also, their they're four most kind of productive attacking manoeuvres, if you like, all come down their right flank. Um, with sort of Zinchenko dropping in, receiving balls and then pushing it out to Yarmolenko. Now, I think if England played Shaw as a wing-back again, that would leave quite a lot of space for that. So I'd be pretty surprised if we don't go back to a, a back four, um, which obviously then allows you know Mason Mount to come in or, or possibly Grealish or even Foden. So, um, 
yeah, I think it could. It's one of those games where I think the first 10 minutes is really going to um, set the tempo. And um, it's funny with, with the Stadio Olimpico, isn't it? Because obviously England got so close to playing there in a tournament in 1990, if it wasn't for Pearson, Waddle. Um, and then I guess their most famous game there was the 97-0-0. Mm. Um, and it's not like England to be involved in low-scoring matches. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect a goal fest unless England do really? score really early. Yeah, I think it could be cagey for a lot of the game. I think Ukraine are going to sit, and I think England... That's why I would love to see sort of Foden as a false nine, because I think that would really, you know, cause a lot more problems, but that probably won't happen. So, yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised to be, you know, to see it nil-nil at half-time and then... You know, Seems like such a dream opportunity again. to really open up and have some fun, though. Playing for a semi-final against a decimated side who've only barely scraped into the... The knockout stages. I know, though, that this tournament has underlined the fact that surprises often follow that kind of thinking. So, yeah, probably Gareth's right to con- continue on the path he's chosen. There have been many suggestions. Do you agree, Charlie? That's what what Gareth Southgate's going to do come Saturday evening. Well, I don't think it's going to be kind of all-out attack. Just go out and express yourselves, lads. But I do think that um, the Germany game was about as conservative team selection as he could feasibly have made and I don't think he'll do that again I do think it will uh, be a reversion to the back four and I suspect we will see an attacking player come in for a more defensive player so you know more like the sort of team that played against Czech Republic say in the groups but it will be controlled probably yeah you know I I think England aren't haven't conceded a goal and they'll know that if they set up do that again, then there's a then they have a huge huge chance of going through. But I but I do think they will win probably by a couple of goals, maybe something like two 0 If they do manage to keep a clean sheet again, Charlie, they'll be only the second team ever to not concede in their first five games of a major tournament. Who was the first? England in '66. No. No. Uh, is it uh, is it recent at all? Is it kind of Oh, lifetime. Do you know the answer, Duncan? Is Sadly, it's, do, yeah. it's not Spain in 2010 because they conceded in their first game. Where uh, are England playing on, on Saturday? Rome. Italy. Italy in... Which tournament, Duncan? Uh, Italia 90? The Chow-powered Italia 90, yeah. yeah. Which, again, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it's all links back. All links back, but um, right. There's a nice little stat with um, obviously Man City central defenders. Um, so far in this tournament, John Stones hasn't obviously seen a goal go in past his team. Um, today, after today's game, Emerick Laporte's now on five, and Ruben Diaz ended on seven. So I'm not sure anyone would wow. have predicted those numbers before the tournament started. But here we are. I like the idea. Sorry, just anyone making predictions about that. In any case, it would be a very, very yeah. niche thing to be yeah. in the pub. Like, all right, guys, come on, let's get your predictions yeah. in. We'll do City, then we've got, to, we've got to do every club in Europe <laughs> that's represented. <laughs> if, um, if England do make it past Ukraine on Saturday night, they will be facing either Denmark or the Czech Republic, which is the other, and for many people, slightly unexpected quarterfinal matchup. The Czechs, who themselves only conceded two goals all tournament and who got into the quarterfinal by beating Holland, 
and not allowing the Dutch a single shot on target. And they were high-flying the Dutch just before that, just before meeting the Czech Republic. Czech's all about getting the ball into Patrick Schick, and it's been pretty effective so far. Denmark, though, who brushed aside Wales with ease, have, coming off back-to-back uh, -back, uh, four goal games. Very impressive. What, who's your money on here, Charlie? Uh... Czech Republic, actually. Is it? Um, Why? Yeah, I feel like they're the more solid outfit. And unfortunately, or well, fortunately, depending on your point of view, that's often what wins out in these knockout games. When it, Especially when you've got two teams who you know probably wouldn't have expected to be there and are probably suddenly kind of doing that equivalent of looking down from a great height and being like, oh, wow, we are actually pretty high up and we have a real chance of progressing so I think it will be tight and I think that will play more into uh, the Czechs hands so I'd, I would back them to, to squeak through really Duncan yeah that doesn't sound massively unlikely I mean I think Denmark they're the in terms of direct speed and direct play they're the fastest team left in the tournament I think mm. you know it's, it's one of those weird games it's a bit like a kind of a Premier League um, B all-stars game we've got you know Suchek up against Hoiberg. Like an outside-the-top-six best-of yeah, thing. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because, you know, you go back to old tournaments, like, you know, we've been talking about Italia 90, and there'd be games in that where you wouldn't know any of these players. You might know the names or had the stickers in the album, but you didn't really know how they played. But, you know, anyone in England watching Denmark, Czech Republic, will, will it'll be all very familiar. And I think it, it could be a quite Premier League-style match, in fact. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. I think... I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because if, if England do get through and, and say the Czech Republic win, it's always weird when you play a team twice in a tournament. Um, right. Obviously, you know, Port Portugal in in 2004, that did for them against Greece. Um, England obviously lost twice to Belgium in the last World Cup. So it can... that It's a bit like we said with penalty shootouts earlier. Russia, you, Euro 2008. Yeah, exactly. So if you if you do something again in a tournament, it can have quite weird psychological effects, I think. So I, I think I'd rather England, if they were going to get through, would play Denmark than, than the Czechs again. It's obviously more complicated now with the teams finishing third and that sort of thing. But I always think teams from the same group should be kept apart until the final. I always found that weird. Like in Euro 2008, it seemed odd that you had teams from the same groups meeting in the semis. Mm. Like, I feel like you, you, you don't want uh, repeated matches but as much as you can avoid it. But they changed that, didn't they? Because they, I think people said they didn't want it to happen in the final. It was almost like that spoiled the final. So they then shifted it back to it can happen right. in the semis. But, but like you say, with the third place thing, I think it can happen at any point now. So. Now, yeah. All bets are off. It's chaos. Well, whatever they've done with the format, it's been pretty special, the knockout stages of this competition. And let's hope that continues Saturday night with the road teams winning and all that. We shall be back on Sunday morning to review it all. We're not done today, though, because very shortly we're going to be getting some hot takes on some of the big news from outside Euroland. Big managerial appointments, big player signings. Before that, a quick bit of odds from Paddy Power, for which it's over to producer Ben. Thank you very much, Jimbo. I'm on the line with Graham Byrne from Paddy Power. Graham, um, let's look ahead, please, to tomorrow. And it's Denmark versus Czech Republic to start us off. Uh, this one's going to be close, I reckon. 
Yeah, definitely. All signs point to this being a close game, two evenly matched teams. But a lot of the public seem to be going towards Denmark. Does, are they reliving that spirit of, what, 1992, where they can come in, be the public's team and win? Um, the bet I like here is I like Denmark to win and both teams to score because the Czech Republic do carry a lot of threat with them. And Schick, of course, he's going to try and join Ronaldo at the top of the golden boot charts. But Denmark have been very impressive lately. They're banging in the goals. They've brushed aside the Russians and the Welsh. I think momentum is on their side. And I will be going with Denmark to win here and both teams to score. That's around about a four to one shot. Okay. Over to Rome then. And it's England versus Ukraine. Um, I've got a bet builder for you, please. Can you, uh, can you price this up? I'm going to go for a 3-0 England win. Harry Kane and Raheem Sterling both to score and one assist from Jack Grealish. Yes, well, it's coming in at about 68 to 1. You're going to get rich if you have a few bob on this one. Correct scores are always difficult to get going with, so a 3-0 correct score will make your bet really juicy. But um, England haven't conceded any goals. The Ukraines haven't kept any clean sheets, so 3-0 to England looks fair enough to me. Harry Kane, of course, got off the mark. You can't keep a good man down forever. He looks like he's going to kick on from here for the anytime goal scorer. I think it's a fantastic bet. It's nearly about even money, Harry Kane, just to score anytime. That's about 10 to 11. Raheem Sterling has been the main man for England already. He scored the crucial goals already. Him to score any time is 7-4. And Jack Grealish, he came on. He turned that game around. He is the man who can provide for all of these. Will he start? If he does, he's 5-2 to two for an any time assist. I think that's a great prize for Jack because he's such a creative player. So if we team it all together, England to win 3-0, Kane and Sterling to score at any time, Jack Grealish to assist at any time, it comes to about 68-1. to one. It's a nice juicy bet. The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Find a bookie who loves you right back as much as Gareth loves right-backs. Place a four-plus-fold bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. £10 max free bet. T's and C's apply. 18plusbgambleaware.org. Listener, it's time to mention the remarkable deal that's currently on offer for subscriptions to The Athletic. Uh, a subscription would offer you unrivaled coverage of Euro 2020, all the articles, all the podcasts ad-free, and Q&As with writers. And it comes at a price of just £1 a month for your first six months. Head to theathletic.com slash totally before they come to their senses. All right. Often at this point in a Totally at the Euro show, we'll do an on this day in Euro's history today being the 3rd of July. Uh, but not, not much happened, actually. 3rd of July 2016, you got France beating Iceland 5-2. But I'm not sure what particularly colourful memories we've got of that game. <laughs> uh, I can promise you, though, that Sunday's one is going to be a belter. But let's park on this day for now and instead just chat about some of the stuff that's happened kind of on this day in 2021, or at least in and around it. You've got a Jaden Sancho to Man United. That's now official. Boom. And he'll be fresh. Uh, Rafa Benitez is officially Everton's new manager. And Nuno Espirito Santo is Tottenham's new manager. Hey, Charlie. Uh, their last defensively minded recently fired Portuguese managerial <laughs> hiring worked out really well for them but I, I don't want to kind of come to this from a negative point of view he, he did have a transformative effect on Wolves what what do you think about this can, is it, can it work out especially after that long search for everybody but Nuno yeah I, I, my view on this is basically like it's, it's a fine appointment and <clears throat> Nuno is a good manager and it may work out I think there are two things that have really undermined it. One is two months ago, uh, you had Daniel Levy talking about we're only going to appoint someone who plays free-flowing, attacking football and who has Spurs DNA and who gets it and who loves the Tottenham way and who, you know, has a 
tattoo of Bill Nicholson. Um, and in reality, they've gone with someone who doesn't really embody those things. And so I think supporters are a little bit like, huh, well, why did you say that? Uh, then there's the fact that the manager search was so chaotic and Nuno has been available for quite a lot of that search uh, and wasn't appointed. I think had he, had he got the job the day after he left Wolves, even if you didn't think he was the best appointment, you'd think, well, okay, that's who they wanted. Uh, that was the plan. Whereas, um, you know, given very publicly they've courted many other managers before getting to him, it just doesn't look great. But, you know, hopefully by the time the season starts, all of that will be forgotten. And if he starts well, wins a few games, uh, then, you know, people will move on. And I think the thing as well to say on Nuno is that he he's more pragmatic than necessarily kind of defensive and conservative. So he will do what he needs to do to win with the players he has. And at Wolves, you know, they were a team punching above their weight. They finished seventh twice. I know they had a lot of investment, but, you know, and he felt the best way to do that was to play that more counter-attacking style. The hope, what he has said, uh, is that, you know, that won't necessarily be the case at Tottenham. He'll have different players, better players, you know, more exciting attacking players. Uh, and we'll set up in a different way. So we'll we'll have to wait and see. There's a bit of recency bias, isn't there? Because the first couple of seasons in the Premier League with Wolves, they were really they were pretty exciting. Yeah, they were counter attacking, but I used to look forward to watching them. Yes, last season wasn't good, but they lost Raul Jimenez, and it was a real sort of grind to get through to the end of the season. So I think it, you know it was it was the right time for him to leave Wolves, but I don't think he's a bad appointment. But like you say, the the length of time does slightly uh, spoil it. What about Rafa Benitez to Everton? He's not the first manager to take charge of both Everton and Liverpool. The previous one was quite recently, in 1892, William Edward Barclay. One normal day of William Edward Barclay, that's all I ask. Will never happen. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's, it's, that's a good appointment though, isn't it? It is in the sense that I mean, I think a lot of people do know this, but Benitez and his family are incredibly settled in the northwest. You know, from his time at Liverpool, I think his family stayed living in the Wirral while he went around the world and Newcastle managing different teams. Um, so in terms of like settling, I think it's a, you know, he'll feel like he's, you know, working from home, essentially, as as many people have in the last 18 months. But um <laughs> It's one of those appointments where if he starts well, I think it will all the issues will be forgotten. But if he if he doesn't start well, there's a sizable amount of Everton fans who are not happy with this this appointment. And I think it's one of those that, yeah, if they start really badly by sort of September October, there's going to already be a pretty a pretty angry groundswell against them. So no pressure. Mm. All right, and Rafa, we mistrust. What about then a short distance away to the east, the arrival at Old Trafford of of Jaden Sancho, who had, as I'm sure we're all aware, an absolutely phenomenal season last time around in the Bundesliga for Dortmund, scoring or assisting 36 goals. He's only just turned 21. A generational talent, is that too much to say, do you think? Or, Well, I think like, people who watch him regularly would, would go along with that. I mean, it's interesting because we look at him probably from quite an England-centric view, which is that you know he struggles to get in this team... Um, hasn't played as much as a lot of people would like. But for those you know, more regular Bundesliga viewers, he is sensational. And I think he, he could be a transformative signing for them. Um, 
you know, he is someone who should give them a huge amount more threat, different ways of playing. It's just, and it's really exciting, isn't it, just to have those kind of players uh, in the Premier League. Um, it, it will be, it'll be really interesting to see how they play with him as well. And if he gets to looking at the Euros, because that would completely change the complexion of that signing as well, wouldn't it? If, and there are still a few games to play. He, who knows? He, he could have an impact. Well, now he's a Manchester United player, he might get in the team. He'll be like, yeah. play for Man United, all right. Um, <laughs> but, um, but for the tactically dim-witted like me, I, I, I would look at this and go, fabulous signing. But that, to me, seemed like an area, and the various areas in which I've seen him play, that Man United are actually pretty well stocked and that there are mother, maybe other aspects of the team that might require a bit of an upgrade first. But, but explain to me why I'm wrong. Well, I don't think that is necessarily wrong. I don't think he... I think he's just an upgrade, like Charlie said. He, you know, he. I think he plays a lot more centrally than than people think. People, if anyone's expecting someone that hugs the right touchline, like a classic winger, that's not really. He's cuts inside. He's very creative with his passing. Most of his kind of chances created come on the round the D. So he will add a, a level of guile that I guess you could say United possibly already have with the likes of Bruno Fernandez. But if he can re- reproduce those numbers that from Germany in the Premier League, I think. Like you say, he is—he could be at a level that really does just drag United to, you know, back into title contenders. I mean, just to put it into context, of all players born in 2000 or later, all you take all goals in the big five leagues scored by players born in 2000 or later or assists, Sancho's responsible for nine percent of them, and there's about 176 players. So, wow. I mean, the, the the numbers he's recorded at the age he is is extraordinary. You know, he's up there on, you know with people like Messi um, in the last couple of years. So it's just whether he can replicate that. You know, I don't want to be one of those people that's like, well, he's got to do it in our league now because he used to be over here anyway. But but it will be interesting. You know, sometimes transfers from other leagues aren't as seamless as people hope they are. So we'll wait and see. Many question marks, but a huge boost to Man United supporters then ahead of the new campaign. And the first, uh, perhaps, of... Uh... Who knows? Could be more big signings there in Manchester. Very nice. Uh, anything else we should be discussing or, or should we wrap it up there for today's Totally at the Euros? Charlie? No, I think no. that's it from me. Duncan, peace out. Peace out. Nice one. All right, well, Sunday morning we'll be back with you. Listener, thank you ever so much for being with us today. And I do hope you enjoy uh, this evening's football. Producer Charlie, many thanks for putting this together overnight. We'll be back, as I mentioned, Sunday morning for now. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at The Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.